tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and he cries out in a loud voice. He doesn't just do this privately. He doesn't hide himself from the way in which he does this. This is a public thing. He goes right as far as the king's gate. And now from this point on, everyone would have known that Mordecai was a Jew. Really is a radical change. Mordecai had made so many compromises. He had gone through life following the path of least resistance, and now he is prepared to risk his neck. What's brought it about? What's caused this change and transformation? And I think the answer is quite simple. God has put him into the crucible of affliction. This happens over and over again. In God's purposes, trials, the really hard times in life, they are so often instrumental in bringing people to repentance. It's another way in which we see God's sovereignty so clearly in the book. God has raised up this situation in order to bring his people, not just in Susa, but right across all these different nations, God is going to bring his scattered people to repentance. Do you see that in verse 3? Because that tells us that this repentance wasn't just confined to Mordecai. Right across all the provinces of the Persian Empire, when people heard about this dire situation, it brought them to their knees, brought them to the point where there was mourning, fasting, weeping, and lamentation. And isn't that something that we see even today? Godly character, the godly character which we're going to see in this book so often, it is forged in adversity. It is beaten into shape on the anvil of uncertainty. It happens very often when people come to faith for the first time. God puts people into a really hard place, and that's one of his means that he uses to break into their lives. It also happens in people when there's real growth and godliness. So often the catalyst that brings it about is that they end up in a situation of real trial. And Mordecai now, having repented, having sought the Lord, he knows that he's got to make contact with Esther. That's what we read about in verses 4 to 11. Esther is isolated. She is cocooned. It appears that she doesn't have a clue about the political situation. She's so hidden away that she's oblivious to the fact that Haman has orchestrated the destruction of her people. So Esther sees Mordecai. He can't come in to the gate. He can stand outside. Esther sees it and she's concerned. Her first response, I think, is somewhat superficial. She sends him clothes so that he can come back into the corridors of power and find someone to talk to to resolve whatever problem there is that needs to be sorted out. But eventually she sends Hatak the eunuch to find out what exactly is going on with her older cousin. 
The whole conversation has to take place through intermediaries who shuttle backwards and forwards between the harem and between the gate of the palace. And through this intermediary, Mordecai says, Esther, please do something. You have to use your influence and position. You must go to the king. You have got to beg for mercy. He puts a hard copy of the edict into her hand so that she can read it for herself. Mordecai says, you have got to stop concealing your identity. Esther, you're going to have to become a witness. She has to tell the king what she should have told him all along beforehand. Hattak goes and relays this news to Esther. And as you can imagine, her first response to this is one of fear. Esther feared King Ahasuerus, and she feared him for good reason. To go in before the king without an invitation was like playing Russian roulette with your own life. She sends a message back. She says, Mordecai, you do not know what you're asking me to do. Don't you of all people know that it's an offense to go in before the king without an invitation? There were huge problems involved in this. There was a legal problem and there was also a personal problem. Esther couldn't just go in because of the law. The law of the Medes and Persians, famous for being an unchangeable law, had very, very strict rules about who could and couldn't go in before the king without being summoned. Historians tell us that there were only seven top officials who had this kind of uninvited access to the king. And we know from what the archaeologists have unearthed that when you get those carvings on the wall of a Persian royal palace that shows the king's throne standing right over his shoulder is a burly henchman armed with a very, very large axe. Anyone who approached the king without an invitation would lose their head in a summary execution. There was only one exception. That would happen if the king happened to hold forth his scepter of royal power. So there's a legal reason why Esther can't just waltz in in front of King Ahasuerus and share all this information with him. But things are even more complicated than that because of a personal reason. Esther has not been called into the king's presence for 30 days, a whole month. And this was not a good sign. The honeymoon was well and truly over. After five years in the harem, it seemed as if things had rather cooled off between Esther and the king. The king's affections presumably had been transferred. And so not having seen him for a month, she has no idea what sort of a mood this man will be in. And to complicate things even further, Esther has lied to the king. She's concealed her true identity. How on earth would he react to such an audacious move as going in uninvited to tell 
a capricious king, that she had lied to him, and that she had done something which would make him look foolish. For someone as volatile as King Ahasuerus, this was dangerous because he is a man who could blow a fuse at any moment. What happened to Vashti shows that he has no qualms about dismissing a queen and getting rid of her just like that. But Mordecai says, you've got to go. You've got to go and be upfront about the fact that you've lied about your identity. You need to tell him that you're Jewish, and you need to explain to him that he has signed into law a decree to murder his own wife. Can you put yourself in Esther's shoes for a second? She's been called to take a stand. She's been told, you have to go public with your faith. And so often, that is a frightening thing, a terrifying thing. What's gonna the, what will the cost be of that? And often we... Think a bit like Esther. We look at the risk and we think, the cost of being really clear about my faith, the value that I would have to pay if I was up front, it's just too high. And the whole strategy probably wouldn't even work anyway. We think all the odds, they're just completely stacked against us. And fear comes along and it paralyzes us. Think about how it works out, even in sharing the gospel with your colleagues. Not even sharing the gospel with them, but just letting them know that you are a committed Christian. Letting them know what you believe. So often we think it's just too terrifying to do that. My friends are not interested. My friends might be offended. I just won't say anything about it. Well, what's the antidote to when fear grips us like that, when it paralyzes us, when we think, like Esther initially thought, I cannot do this. The cost is too high. Well, we're going to see that in verses 12 to 14. Because here, God's truth is going to get right down into Esther's heart. And when God's truth gets buried in there, it will take root and it will grow. So in 12 to 14, Mordecai, he wants to press the point home. Esther, it's as if she's standing at the fork in the road. She can go one of two ways and she's hesitant. And so Mordecai brings the full force of things down upon her. He gives her some hard realities. He has to force her to make the decision that she would rather try to avoid. Verse 13, he says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Now that Mordecai's outed himself, people know that Esther's related to him. And there are no exception clauses in this edict. 
There's no fine print right at the end of it that means somehow or other the queen will be able to escape. He goes on in verse 14. He tells Esther, if you keep silent, you will perish. Even if the earthly king made an exception for his own wife, well, Esther would still need to be prepared to face the heavenly king that she had denied. So he presses things upon her. He says, Esther, you need to choose. You have to decide which king you will fear. Will you live in fear to the kingdom of this world? Or will you live in fear of the kingdom of God? You either fear the king coming to deliver his people or you suffer under his wrath. There is no middle ground. And he gives her more motivation. He wants to stir her to action here. Right at the center of verse 14, perhaps the most famous verse in the book, Mordecai says something which is tremendously significant. Mordecai says, I am convinced that deliverance will come. You need to hear that as a great statement of faith. Mordecai says, I am absolutely convinced that deliverance will come from somewhere. Mordecai has repented. He is trusting his God and he believes the promises that God has made. He believes that God's people will not be extinguished. God's going to keep his word, and so God will come to save. Mordecai knows that relief will come from some quarter because God is faithful. Mordecai's grasped what is so important here. The invisible God, he is sovereign and faithful. After all, do you remember from the last session, the edict had gone out right on the eve of Passover, Mordecai knows that his God is a God who specializes in the impossible. And so even though the whole might of the Persian Empire is against them, he has got this great confidence in God's covenant faithfulness. He knows that God cannot but fail to keep his promises no matter what the opposition is. I know God will save his people. Relief will arise from another place. He tells Esther, no matter what happens, God will be faithful and he will deliver his people. So he's given her reasons. He's pressing the point home. He says, Esther, you need to act. And he says, look at Providence. Because it seems as if God has been working through all of this to put you into an absolutely unique position. He's saying, you're not where you are by chance. The God who will bring deliverance has in all likelihood put you where you are for this very purpose. And so he calls Esther to greatness in the kingdom of God. In verses 15 to 17, we come then to Esther's defining moment, this moment of great 
risk-taking faith. Esther's at the crossroads. She has to decide who she is. What's her real identity? Is Esther the Jewish girl Hadassah? Or is she the pagan princess Esther? She's torn between these two identities. We feel that all the time, don't we? We find ourselves in a similar dilemma. Am I going to identify myself as a Christian or am I going to blend in? And Mordecai calls her to risk-taking faith. And with that call, her identity crisis is over. Esther now, for the first time, is going to take responsibility and she will publicly identify with God's people. No easy thing to do. For Esther to do this, she's going to have to admit to everyone that she's compromised. She'll have to acknowledge that for years she has been living a double life. By taking this stand, she is going to make herself a very easy target. She's going to put that target right on her own back. She is putting herself on the line. God's truth, when it gets in our hearts, it is powerful enough to change the heart so that Esther or people like us can exercise risk-taking faith. What Esther is about to do is powerful. And it's the kind of change, it's the kind of courage that the Lord God can produce in people's hearts. She sends back a message, pray with me and fast with me. Don't just fast for one day, but fast for three days. And rally the support of God's people. Esther here embraces and believes the plan of God. She sees her place within God's great plan. She is going to go to the king. And if she perishes, well, then she perishes. Earlier on, we had contrasted Daniel, there to be a Daniel, with Esther and her chameleon faith. Well, when Esther or Hadassah says, if I perish, I perish, well, now she's starting to sound like Daniel's friend, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were threatened with the fiery furnace, if we perish, then we perish. Esther is going to take her stand no matter what. She embraces the call to such an extent that she is willing to die standing in solidarity with God's people. It's real faith. It's courageous faith. And it's what God is calling us to. We'll walk with her. She goes into the royal palace and she approaches the throne room Her heart, it must have been beating very, very fast. Everything about the palace of a Persian king is put there in a way that is designed to intimidate. Look even how in verse 1 of chapter 5, how everything is focused in on the king. His name is repeated three times. The word palace is repeated twice. The word throne twice. 
the writer is piling up the words to make his point. But God's people have been fasting. The Lord has answered their prayers. He's given Esther great courage. And that courage sustains her to defend the cause of the kingdom of God and the people of God. And so there she is. She stands right on the threshold. And she is prepared to let go of her life and place it in God's hands. This is the moment she spoke of in chapter 4, verse 16. I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. She's prepared to lose her life for the kingdom of God. Remember those words that Jesus said? Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Ahasuerus is on his throne. He looks down the length of the great hall. And he sees Esther there waiting. We're meant to hold our breath. Our only hope will come if the king will extend his golden scepter And he did just that. The Lord has heard the cries of his repentant people. And he's moved the king to grant Esther favor. As Proverbs 21 verse 1 so memorably puts it. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. Esther feared the Lord more than she feared King Ahasuerus. And the fear of the Lord always is the beginning of wisdom. And that's what we're going to see now. As Esther approaches to touch the scepter, Esther will act with great wisdom. I'm sure King Ahasuerus was asking himself, why on earth would Esther do this? What would have moved her to risk her neck by coming in here uninvited? But on this day, feeling magnanimous, he was in the mood to be generous. And in formulaic language of the court, he offered to grant her wish, even to the extent of half of his kingdom. What is Esther going to say? Is she going to fall on her knees and plead for the king to save her people? Well, remember this, it is no easy thing for the king to grant her request. The law of the Medjian Persians, it could not be changed. If the king does that, it will result in a major political U-turn. And making flip-flop decisions like that, it's never good for anyone in political power. This is no easy thing for King Ahasuerus to do. And so Esther full of wisdom, is going to go about all of this in a way in which the king will not lose face. Here's what I love. Esther has not just grown in faith. She has also matured into wisdom. Her approach here, it is skillful and it is subtle. It's cleverly designed in those days of fasting and now perfectly executed 
when she comes in before the throne. She appears before the king, and she said, I'd love you just to come to a private banquet that I have prepared as a special surprise. And king, if it pleases you, well, please invite Haman, your right-hand man. Why the banquet? Well, this is a king who loves to be entertained. And so when she invites him to a feast, she is talking his language, and he readily agrees to what Esther has planned. After dinner that day, the king again invites Esther to reveal her request. The king knows this. There must be something behind all of this. There's something that Esther wants. What is it? He repeats his willingness to grant her request. He says, Esther, whatever it is, your wish, it is my command. What's she going to say? Esther, just ask me and I'll give it to you. We'll look at verse 8. What does she say? Simply, please, my king, come back tomorrow for another banquet, and then I'll reveal my request. Why the delay? Why ask the king to a second feast? Has Esther just lost her nerve? Has she bottled out at the last minute? This is deliberate postponement. It's another one of Esther's shrewd and prudent moves. Esther has whetted Ahasuerus' appetite with this mystery. And she knows that if she brings him back tomorrow, well, then he will be like putty in her hands. And she invites Haman again. You think, well, Surely Haman's presence might undermine her whole cause. Wouldn't it be better just to get the king alone and try to explain things? Well, Haman's invited because she is going to set Haman up. After five years in the palace, she knows how both these men operate. She understands the chemistry of the situation. Esther, she's like the catalyst in this. She's going to bring the king and Haman together, and then she will stir things up in such a way that Haman will reveal and show his true colors. There's going to be a reaction, and then the king will deal with the problem once and for all. Do you see what Esther's doing in all of this? She's walking the path towards usefulness, influence, and even greatness. Esther is giving her life away. She is losing her life in order to find it. After years of compromise, she takes her stand for the cause of God and the people of God. And through all of this, she displays royal wisdom. Up until this point in the book of Esther, Esther's only been described as Queen Esther on one occasion. But from this moment on, when she exercises this act of gutsy, courageous faith, she is called Queen Esther again and again. Sixteen times, 
Queen Esther will be at work. She's described that way almost in every chapter that follows because Esther is now walking the path to true greatness in the kingdom of God. She fears not the king that she sees with her eyes. She fears the king seated on the higher throne. She knows that he's a God of covenant faithfulness, and she will stand with God's people. And walking that path, coming out from the shadows, going public, that is the path to true greatness in the kingdom of God. And then we get a postscript. If we've seen the path to godliness and wisdom, now we get a contrast. We're shown someone walking the other way, a man walking along the path that leads to folly. And contrast the two things. Contrast the great wisdom that Esther shows with the incredible folly that we're about to read about in Haman's life. Haman leaves the banquet in the royal apartments and he heads for home. Haman is a man who is wise in his own eyes, but who is actually the very personification of a biblical fool. He leaves in verse 9, joyful and glad of heart. And all of this is instantly cut short when he walks past the law courts and he sees that Mordecai neither rises nor trembles before him. There's Mordecai, sentence of death hanging over him. But Mordecai has got the poise and peace that belongs to the child of God. He's not in a flap. He's not past himself. Great poise. And Haman is enraged that Mordecai would not show him the respect that he thought he deserved. When he left the palace a few moments ago, His ego had been massaged by the unique honor that had been given to him. But now in just a moment, Mordecai ruins it all by not honoring him. It's what we see all the time in our world. People for whom their happiness and their sense of identity is tied up with earthly glory and recognition. Haman pretends in verse 10 as as if he doesn't notice what goes on with Mordecai, but he sees it, he clocks it, and he is instantly deflated. Having been on such a high, when he goes through the door at home, he is moping. And with his guard down, we see exactly what sort of a man Haman really is. His ego, it has been bruised. It needs to be massaged. And so he gathers his family all around him. He calls in his friends, and he starts to brag about his accomplishments. He itemizes his riches. He polishes his trophies in front of them. He speaks of his children and their accomplishments. He moves on to tell of the honors that the king has bestowed upon him. And finally, he speaks of the most recent highlight of the whole thing, He has been dining with the king and the queen. Haman is a man who almost believes his own publicity. 
He's climbed right to the top of the political establishment. And yet he is still a man in need of constant affirmation. And he tries to numb the whole thing by getting drunk and self-promotion. And yet it simply doesn't work. He tells all those around him of his accomplishments. But yet verse 13, it is worth nothing to him so long as he sees Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then in steps Zeresh, Haman's lovely wife. She says, well, why not simply hang him? By 50 cubit gallows, she is probably referring to a 70-foot high pole on which to impale Mordecai. 70 feet high. It is ridiculously, it is absurdly high. But it kind of matches the absurdity of Haman's pride. Zeresh says, satisfy your hatred by taking him out and making an example of him. And Haman is delighted with the idea and immediately commissions workers to erect the stake. Here, if Esther is the model of wisdom, well, Haman is the paradigm of the fool. This can only lead Haman one way. As Proverbs 16 verse 8 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Later in that chapter, Proverbs 16, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way to death. Haman is utterly oblivious to what is really going on. Haman thinks that he is on the fast track to success. He talks about how he is destined for dizzy heights, but ironically, he doesn't know what kind of elevation actually lies in front of him. At the height of his power, he has both designed and built the very gallows on which he himself will be hung. This stake that the carpenters are constructing is nothing more than a folly, to, a monument to his own folly. He's blinded by his own vanity and to the terrible danger that he's actually in. You see, right through Esther, we are reminded of the truth that God is not mocked. Yes, there are moments when it appears as though God is mocked, but ultimately, in the end, the Lord God is not mocked. The Lord already has all the pieces right in place, exactly where they should be to bring about the deliverance of his people. Some of it involves the faith and courage and wisdom of Esther and Mordecai. Some of it involves things which were completely outside their control and that they knew nothing about. But as the sun set that evening, the trap was set that would forever end the opposition of the Agagites to God's people. 
hatred that stretched back through the centuries right to the time of King Saul and even to the exodus from Egypt. There's a path of wisdom in this life and there is a path of folly. Esther's going to show us how to walk the path of wisdom at home, in your workplace, in college, with your friends. And Haman is going to scream out a warning to us against walking down the path of folly because he says that path only goes one way. Let me close by saying that there are two things that you need to do in order to walk the path of usefulness and influence and even greatness. Two simple things. You need to fear the Lord, first of all, and secondly, you need to trust him. Complicated situations all around us. A whole web of difficulty. How would you ever find your way out of it? So often sin leaves us. Don't we have the maze outside? As if you're in the maze, you don't know which way to turn, which way to go. Well, in every complicated situation like that, the first step The first place to put your foot, if you want to walk the path of wisdom, is to fear the Lord as the high king. That's where Esther began as she walks the path of the wise. She recognized that she has a responsibility to a higher throne than which, a throne higher than the one that King Ahasuerus sat on. She knows that the Lord God is the one to whom she ultimately must buy an answer. The path to greatness, the first step, begins with fearing the Lord. And the second step, the next place to plant our foot, is to trust the Lord. Both Esther and Mordecai were convinced that one way or another, God would rescue his people. And that trust in God's faithfulness gave Esther the courage to go before the king And it gave Mordecai the poise not to tremble before his enemy, Haman. And we have even more reason to trust, far more reason to trust that God is faithful because we know what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And if we have more reason to trust than they did, that means that we have got even greater motivation for exercising risk-taking faith because we know the gospel far more clearly than Esther and Mordecai ever did. Esther came to say that she had to go before Ahasuerus. Well, our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, knew that the only way in which he could save his people was to be born into this world. When it came to Esther... She risked her life for her people. But the Lord Jesus did not just risk his life. He actually gave up his life freely. Esther, when she stood in the royal palace, staring down the hallway, looked at the threat of death. As Jesus contemplated the cross, he looked at the prospect of death itself. With Esther, death was a possibility. But with Jesus, it was not simply a matter of if I perish. There was an absolute inevitability 
The golden scepter was held out to Esther, and that meant that she was spared the executioner's axe. When the Lord Jesus died, the axe of God's holy judgment fell on him. The rod of the iron scepter crashed down upon him. The Father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us in order that a new and living way might be opened. The golden scepter is now extended to sinners, and we may draw near. It means that we can go to the throne of grace, of the heavenly king, with bold confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Far more reason than Esther ever had to both fear the Lord and to trust him. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is supremely trustworthy. You can trust him absolutely when he calls you to be courageous, when he tells you that you must take a stand, when he says, don't blend in, but live for my kingdom. You can take his word for it. He gave up his life for you, and so you can trust him absolutely. When you trust him, it delivers us from the folly that we saw in Haman. Just that complete unhappiness and futility of trying to get your value from what the people round about you think of you. When you fear a king like this, when you trust him, it means that you will be like Mordecai. You won't tremble when the enemies of the kingdom threaten you. We've been invited to a place of honor at the heavenly banquet, and no one can take it away from us. So what about you? What has God brought you to at this moment for? Right here, right now. Every day, we come to these forks in the road, defining choices that need to be made about who we are. There'll be situations before each one of us, and we can turn one way and follow the path of least resistance and walk the path of compromise, ultimately walking the path of pride that only leads one way. Or we can do what Esther did here. We can entrust ourselves to the great king. And when we do that, we will put ourselves in the position where God can use us. God brought Esther to the kingdom for exactly that moment. And God's sovereign over all your lives. He brings you to situations where you can be truly great in the kingdom of God when you fear him and when you trust him. Let us pray.